is uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Crypto and crime, crime and crypto, they go together like spreadsheets in tax evasion. When cryptocurrency hit the scene, it was, according to its evangelists, going to usher in a world decentralized currency that would free people from the shackles of oppressive central banks. And it turns out it was a pretty great way to launder money. Crypto is also the subject of the new book Red Team Blues, a novel from writer Cory Doctorow. In Red Team Blues, a 67-year-old forensic accountant finds himself at the center of a crypto crime mystery that takes him from the heights of Silicon Valley to the depths of the Tenderloin. He's with us here today to talk about it. Dr. O, in case you don't know, is the author of more than a dozen books and too many articles to count. He's currently blogging at craphound.com, and you can still often see some pretty good threads of his on Twitter while it lasts. Corey, thank you so much for coming onto the show today to talk about this book. Thank you, Matthew. If I may gently correct you. Oh, did I say your name than, wrong? No, but more than two dozen books, and I blog on pluralistic.net. But but who's counting? <laughs> Crap Hound is more like the collection of where that's everything just, is. That's just my author site. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I am- blog every day at pluralistic.net. I apologize. See, this no, is you, it's fine. No, normally during the pre-read, I like read it and then allow the person to make uh, uh-huh. make adjustments. And I didn't do that this, this time. And now here this we is are. One of those glimpses behind the scenes that are going to excite your your audience. Uh, another glimpse behind the scenes is somebody pointed out in the chat that uh, our intro is full of samples. Yes. Uh, and if you want to know why that's really funny, you should watch the live stream on Twitch or YouTube. And get the pre-show I was chat. Thinking the very same thing as you were playing it. I went when we went and saw Jurassic Park at the uh, at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery last year. Um, all of us quoted the "It's a Unix system" line together. It was very good. <laughs> it, like I, I get so much joy out of hearing our intro. Uh, does you know thinking about the Unix system in Jurassic Park? It's beautiful. I, um, I'm a recovering Irix administrator. Like that was my uh, that was my OS. That that terrible file browser that everybody stopped using after the first time they saw a demo, and then went back to the command line. It just it all makes me so. I remember the la- uh, I ran a land center in Dallas for a while, mm-hmm. um, and you had to the way that the Steam software worked on the back end for a land center was mm-hmm. all command line based nightmare. <laughs> Absolute oh, nightmare. Beautiful yeah. amount of control, but oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that sounds terrible. I, I spent a lot of time uh, wrestling with um, uh, ISDNs, so you have my uh, you have my uh, sympathy there. All right, so let's let's talk about Red Team Blues. Uh, so your hero, I, I let's get this out of the way. I thought this was a little rude in the blurb in the beginning. In the uh, Martin is a contain your excitement. Self-employed forensic accountant. Uh, your hero is a 67-year-old forensic accountant. That is not the typical hero of, a, of an adventure novel or a mystery. Well, and it's not the typical hero of a Cory Doctorow novel, because I'm best known for this trilogy, The Little Brother books. Uh, not really a trilogy, but, but three related books uh, whose main protagonist is a 17-year-old in the Bay Area. And they're kind of bookends. Marty Hench and Marcus Yallow from... from uh, uh, the red, t- the little brother books. Um, they're both extremely excited about the power of technology. They're both extremely frightened about the power of technology. Um, Marcus, the hero of the little brother books is fighting to keep what he sees as valuable about the technology around him. 
and Marty is fighting to get back what we lost, right? That, you yeah. know, he's, he, as Tom Eastman says, he remembers a time when the web wasn't just five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And, um, he, uh, having been in Silicon Valley for 40 years, has seen every single finance bro scam. He's, he's, he's basically invented forensic accounting for tech. His origin story, which you, you learn in the third book, there's, there's three of these all done and coming out over the next year and a half. Um, the, the, in the third book, you learn that he actually flunks out of MIT because he becomes too obsessed with spreadsheets and has to go and become a CPA. And, and in his CPA program in a two year community college in Boston, he realizes that all of his classmates are there because they want to figure out how to use spreadsheets to hide money. And he's like, I'm going to use it to find money. And, and that's his, uh, that's his game. Right. And so he's been kind of meeting weirdos with ideas about how to hide their money who think that they're smarter than everyone else and proving them delightfully wrong for 40 years. And while it's given him quite a sense of accomplishment and maturity, it's also somewhat tarnished his view of humanity's essential goodness. Uh, and yet he still holds on to it. Uh, Peter Watts, um, wrote a, uh, a very good review as a fellow science fiction writer, wrote a very good review on his blog this week where he said that, um, it's weird because when Peter writes books, everyone is just a bastard. Uh, <laughs> but Peter's day job is being like a marine biologist. And like most of the people he meets are perfectly nice. And when I write books, everyone is basically nice, even the bad guys. And my day job is being an activist, meeting the most venal, awful scumbags in the world. And he's like, maybe it's aspirational. And I think maybe there is something aspirational there. But, you know, Marty has been around long enough to know that um the way that you become a villain is not by setting out to become a villain. It's by setting out to do something good and uh and then kidding yourself that uh what you're doing is the least of two evils right it's one of the reasons that like the gpl and creative commons licenses are so powerful they're irrevocable and so if you create a software package and you license at gpl and then later on you know some vc comes along and says well we'll give you millions of dollars all you need to do is make it not free software anymore all you need to do is enshittify it right to make it make it off limits to the uh, people who've been relying on and building an ecosystem out of it. All you need to do is rug pull them. Um, even if you want to, you can't because you have irrevocably committed that code to uh, a GPL framework. And, and, you know, there are many reasons that the GPL contains that uh, irrevocable uh, language, but one of them is recognizing the essential frailty of the human condition. You know, what, what we call the Ulysses pact, you know, when Ulysses sails through the, the sea of the sirens, he knows that the protocol is to put, uh, um, wax in your ears so that you don't hear the siren song and jump into the sea and drown. But being a hacker, he wants to hear what the sirens sound like. And so he, um, he has his, uh, uh, sailors lash him to the mast. Because he knows in the future he'll be weak. And in this moment when he's strong, he uses his strength to protect himself from the weakness that he knows he'll encounter in the future. Uh, and, and, you know, Marty lives in a t- world of tech where people just don't use Ulysses packs often enough or don't have them available often enough. And they end up taking everything that's beautiful and great and transformative and turning it into something awful. It's funny you, you say that about the like the fundamental goodness of the characters 
Uh, and especially like Marty's view of them. He always sees the best in people. Maybe I've, maybe I've read too much Raymond Chandler. Um, and I think there's a lot of similarities here between this specific book and like a Chandler's kind of whole deal in general. But I was expecting like some third act heel turns from some characters that, that I was shocked. I don't want to, I don't know how much I want to spoil here. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised by, by some of the characters arcs uh, in this book. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't villains. A few of them are, are quite terrible indeed. Uh, You know, this is a book, uh, maybe I can set it up a little. Uh, Marty uh, is this forensic accountant. Um, He has, uh, he's ready to retire. He's 67 years old. Uh, One of his recent jobs involved bailing out a rock star whose manager stole all of his money. And the rock star had sunk what he had left into a giant luxury tour bus so that he could tour for the rest of his life because his his money was all gone. Marty recovered that money. His normal deal is he gets uh, 25 cents on the dollar for whatever he recovers. But in this case, he took the luxury tour bus and trade. So he's got this 33-foot luxury tour bus with marble countertops that he drives from the Baja up to Oregon and inland. The unsalted uh, hash. The unsalted hash, yeah. Taking his retirement on the installment plan. And he gets a call from his old pal Danny Laser, who's a cryptographer from the crypto war days when crypto meant cryptography and not cryptocurrency. And um Danny has unwisely gotten involved in creating a cryptocurrency and even more unwisely has hidden a backdoor in it in case things go very wrong. And now the keys to that backdoor have leaked and the money launderers who are ruthless international criminals uh who have sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into his blockchain are uh, at risk of losing everything. And Danny knows that if that happens, they're going to come for him and literally flay him alive. And so Marty's last big job is seeing if he can get these keys back before they fall in the wrong hands. In so doing, he ends up in the crosshairs of two different rival criminal syndicates, uh, Azerbaijani money launderers and Mexican narcos, who are each trying to double cross each other, um, as well as a bunch of useless to evil American three-letter agencies. Uh, and he has to try and escape with his life because having recovered more than a billion dollars for Danny Laser, he's now entitled to 25% of it if he can live long enough to, to get it. Tell me about uh, Laser and especially the scene at the beginning where Marty is confronting him about kind of betting big at is he's 75, right? He's an yeah. old, he's an old head at this point, like extremely old head, uh, Silicon Valley royalty. Um, this late in life, deciding to not only like kind of fund this crypto and start this crypto uh, uh, company, but he, he believes it. He's a true believer. He's talked himself into saying that this thing is going to be uh, the next big thing. He's an evangelist for crypto. Yeah, as, lo- sure. as long as it can get to, uh, uh, as long as it can get enough money into, into the system. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, reasons to not like cryptocurrency. Um, one of them is that it's very energy intensive. And another is that even if you move away from energy intensive uh, security systems like proof of work and into proof of stake, it is intrinsically speculative. 
basically, even in a tr- proof of stake world, the only thing that keeps cryptocurrency valuable um, is that there are people uh, and, and viable, not valuable, but viable. The only thing that makes the, the ledger continue to have integrity is the belief by people that you can just buy a thing, wait a while, it'll be worth more and you can sell it, that they can speculate their way into it. And there is something just intrinsically toxic about speculation, or at least there's a group of people who have that ideology and I'm among them. So there are reasons to dislike cryptocurrency there. Um, but there is a model for maintaining integrity within a cryptocurrency that doesn't require either of those things. And it's something that's been discussed for more than 20 years. And the premise here is that it's something that Danny Laser has been thinking about for 20 years, but wasn't really possible until just now. Um, and this is uh, what is sometimes called trusted computing and a closely related idea of remote attestation. So this is the kind of thing that I think you would probably have like Joseph Cox on or Lorenzo back in the day to talk about. But uh, it, it, about 20 years ago, we got a call, uh, actually a visit from Microsoft at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where I've worked for a couple of decades now. And they wanted to show us this thing that they built called Palladium. That was the code name for something that the trade name was um, Next Generation Secure Computing Base, or as it came to be called, Trusted Computing. And the idea is that uh, whereas a regular computer, you think of it as having like a processor that does the data processing on your behalf and that you program or that you direct programs to operate on, um, in a trusted computing scenario, you add a second computer, uh, a computer that um, is sealed, that you can't reprogram, that has a, a dumb little toy operating system that only does a small number of things, and that you can... Um, uh, ask to observe your main processor and what it's doing and make little cryptographic hashes of it that it signs. And then you can send those to other people. So if someone says, prove to me before we play this game of Counter-Strike that your computer isn't running an aim hack, you can say, all right, I'm going to have the secure enclave or the trusted computing module observe my computer's operating condition and create a manifest that it's going to sign and send to you And then because this trusted computing module was designed such that I can't ever tamper with it without, you know, yanking it off the board and it's self-destructing and because the keys are kept a secret, so I can't make a a tamper uh, friendly version, I am therefore going to be able to uh, make this attestation to you and you and I can play a game together. Uh, it also means that your boss can say something like, hey, uh, remote worker, I'm going to put some bossware on your computer that uh, watches everything you do and make sure that you're not cheating me by like looking away and up to the right while you're thinking you have to be staring into the camera the whole time. And and you can't just install something that um, tricks the bossware because the bossware in this environment can send an attestation back to your boss that tells it what the environment that your computer is in and your boss can decide that they're not going to trust it. So there's some coercive power there too. Um, the Iranian government could make everyone in Iran install software that spied on them and that also told the Iranian cyber police whether or not you were doing something you you, you weren't supposed to do. So so this is a this is a profoundly uh, double-edged technology that um, has been sort of creeping by dribs and drabs into our workflow. So like this is the way that Apple makes sure that you're not installing um, third-party apps, which would deprive its shareholders of their 30% rake on the App Store. Um, 
it's it's how uh secure boot works and there were just a couple of really spectacular secure boot leaks um you know there, there's a lot of this there's there's a lot of ways in which this is becoming more commonplace um and uh you can make a cryptocurrency using it right you can make a cryptocurrency and this is what mobile coin and a few other cryptocurrencies do you can make a cryptocurrency where uh i send you some work on the ledger right i say like i'm going to make a transaction and I'm going to record that this coin is moving from this wallet to that wallet. And then I, I send that around to everybody else who wants to observe it. And I send it signed by my secure enclave such that we can all agree that I made that transaction using the code that we've all agreed to run that hypothetically we all believe is immune to cheating. And so now we can just trust the transaction ran. We don't need proof of work. We don't need proof of stake. And so if you're Danny Laser and you're like, well, the things that I don't like about this are that it can be used for, um, uh, it can be used, uh, speculatively or that it has this giant energy consumption. Well, now we don't have to worry about that. And yeah, it's also private, but you know, I made my peace with the bad things people can do with privacy because I'm a veteran of the, of the code of the, the crypto wars. And, you know, I made end to end encrypted messaging tools that, can be used to send ransom notes as easily as they can be used to send plans to overthrow a despot or just nudes. Uh, and, um, and I made my peace with that too. And so, uh, I'm not worried about the money laundering. I'm just worried about the, the other stuff. And here I can solve it. Or maybe I can talk myself into thinking that I'm not worried about the money laundering. So that's how Danny Laser gets to where he's at, right? Making this cryptocurrency where the keys go missing. And it's funny because I come up with a whole elaborate scheme whereby the keys can go missing. The keys are stored on a laptop that he's actually opened up and taken a set of pliers and removed the network interfaces from. I actually did this once uh because i reported out one of the snowden leaks uh and um i had access to the full snowden trove in a clean room and then i was given a set of them on a tails drive to load onto a laptop that had not been redacted when i published them there were elements of them that were redacted and i only ever used that thumb drive to boot a laptop that i had physically opened and removed all networking interfaces from so there was no way to for the for the you know, the machine was comprehensively air gapped when I was working with it. Um, and so, uh, uh, this data is on this, this air gapped laptop. The boot key itself is on a key ring that, uh, Danny Laser only carries when he's going to his data center. They have to import a pickpocket from Covent Garden in London to bump him and get the key off of him. It's a and, lost and art, was, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was pretty proud of this. And now there was just a leak of a set of these keys <laughs> where it turned out that they were just sitting on a web server that wasn't well secured and had never been encrypted. Right. Like I, I, I like I, I could have written that right and saved a couple thousand words. No one would have believed yeah, it, even though that's how the keys leak. That's like uh, I keep thinking about stuff like this uh, with every new little bit of information we learn about uh, the discord leaker who yeah. was walking in and out of the Pentagon last night. News broke. Um, they knew. They knew. They knew that he had just. They had seen him. They had seen him like folding up pieces of paper and walking out with it. This is in government reports extent that have been kind of turned up. It's always so much stupider, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Than, than the than the fiction author can possibly imagine. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's it's like uh, Chelsea Manning. Just uh, I forget what it was she wrote on the CDRs that she took out of the the data center but it was like uh, acdc or something guns and roses and they were just like all right off you go with your guns and roses cds 
<laughs> I mean, I, I think what Chelsea did was very brave and I have a lot of respect for her, but to call that a transparent ruse is to do insult and injury to good, hardworking, transparent ruses all the world over, you know? Reminds me of a line from um, The Invisibles. Have you ever read that by Grant Morrison by chance? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's just like you can – something to be effective. You can put up uh, 10,000 cameras all over the world that are watching everyone, but you can't keep the security guard that's watching the cameras from replaying the 15th level of Doom for the 100th time. Yeah. Yeah. So the Sam Bankman freed problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe if he maybe if he hadn't been playing video games, they would have seen his his eyes moving suspiciously and they would have been, wait a second. I mean, speaking of someone who was supposed to be doing something very secure and turned out to just be like putting it all on, I don't know, like a G drive or whatever. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We will be right back after this. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, welcome back, cyber listeners. We were talking to Corey Doctorow about Red Team Blues. The other, another aspect of this, we, I was talking about the Chandler uh, kind of milieu of this uh, book. Mm-hmm. Um, mystery books, the ones that I like anyway, uh, kind of put you on a tour through the time and the place uh, where the not where the the mystery takes place, and yeah. I feel like we're getting this kind of greatest hits of. Uh, California in a way, or like like California v- viewed through the lens of like this guy, Martin Hinch, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about like what pieces of San Francisco and California you wanted to highlight here? And were you kind of conscious of that or was it just like part of the plot as he's moving through these areas? I'm thinking specifically of like his time kind of at the end of the books where he sees uh, some of the way, you know, the harder ways that people live and also uh, going a little bit farther out of town, uh, you know, his journey at the restaurant before the cabin, these kinds of things. Yeah. 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 So it's true. I mean, the Bay area is an amazing and contradictory place. Uh, I, I have been a Californian now five times. So this is my fifth time living in California, uh, twice in San Francisco, three times in Los Angeles. Um, and I started visiting California first as a tourist and then as a tech worker, um, right as the consequences of the deinstitutionalization of mental patients were ramping up, the AIDS crisis was burning through the city, um, the crack epidemic was hitting the city. Uh, and, you know, Toronto, where I grew up, lagged that by some years. Uh, and um, it was remarkable and a kind of moral injury to see people in such a degraded state, especially in a city that even then was quite wealthy, but then was also quite bohemian. And there was a kind of blurring at the edge between bohemians and people who were down and out. There's a, there's a kind of crossover there. And as the bohemian character of the city has been squeezed out by rising rents, uh, 
and uh, both both commercially and residentially, you end up with a, a much starker bifurcation, which, you know, I don't think there's ever been anyone who went to a conference at the Moscone Center who didn't remark on going from a conference where you are surrounded by Michelin star restaurants and by uh, people who work in the tech sector in mid six figure salaries um, and then walking literally one block up and being amidst the uh, terrifying homelessness, mental illness and addiction crisis on display in the Tenderloin that only gets worse the deeper you go into the Tenderloin, which is also where all the conference hotels are. So you walk through them between the Moscone and, and, you know, the Ritz or, or whatever. Um, it is really, uh, it's really something. And, you know, the tech sector claims both implicitly and explicitly that it has the vision for our future, right? That, that like, they know how we should live in the future. Indeed, um, one of the tricks of the tech sector is the trick of every bully and despot, which is to declare the future a fait accompli, right? To do what Margaret Thatcher did when she said, there is no alternative. You know, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, when you say, well, Mark, I'd like to talk to my friends, but not be spied on. He's like, yeah, and I'd like water that isn't wet, right? Like, how would you do that? That is like inconceivable. Right. Gotta monetize means, your conversation somehow, right? They gotta suck every yeah. last bit of data oil out of you and render it down for advertisers and others. Yeah, I mean it's like the Monty Python sketch where they're um the guy's describing the luxury flats that are also an abattoir. <laughs> and they're like, you know, what well what what if what if we took the whirling blades out? And he's like, Well, then how would we dismember the people who entered? And they're like, Well, we wouldn't want to dismember those people. And well, if they if you don't dismember them, how would you feed them into the grinder? Right. I it's just there's there's just this kind of um the, you know, the starting point uh is off stage and considered to just be a default that um, you're not allowed to question. That's out of the frame. And so Silicon Valley says we have to live according to what my colleague at EFF, uh, Jillian York, calls Silicon Values. Um, and when you see those values, when you see how those values are realized in San Francisco, for starters, you're like, how can anyone whose values has resulted in this lay legitimate claim to knowing how the rest of us should live. Surely this permanently disqualifies you. And then you get down to Palo Alto uh, and environs where in some ways it's less visible because the homelessness there is confined to people living in vehicles, often RVs, but sometimes just passenger vehicles on the side of the road, everywhere you look. And those people are the people who clean the toilets and cook the food at tech campuses, right? And again, like, if you can't figure out how to run a business, moreover, a business that mo most often has a dual share structure where the founders retain 51% stake even after the uh, the company is sold off uh, on the public markets so that the final decision vests with those visionary founders. If you can't figure out how to structure a business such that the people who keep you from dying of listeria and E. coli poisoning don't have to live in a Prius with the seats folded back, then what claim have you of being able to shape our future? Why shouldn't we take everything you tell us that you want to do for the future and crumple it up and until it's all corners, shove it up your ass and then run as fast as we can in the opposite direction? Yeah, I've got a quote and then a question here kind of, uh, on the back of that, uh, 
This is from Marty. Uh, what a fucking nightmare. How could a city this rich be this poor? I mean, I knew. I knew. All you need was financial secrecy so the wealthy could hide the, their riches from taxation and then loose lobbying rules so they could convert their winnings into wealth-friendly policies. Uh, one of the things I like about this book is that he has this perspective because he's been living in the spreadsheets his entire life, uh, that he has the answers to these questions. Um, can you talk about that unique perspective, what it is to be like a forensic accountant to Silicon Valley for 40 years and see the dirty dealings. So one of, one of the funniest things that anyone has described this book as so far is um, Panama papers fanfic. And uh, I, I think that if you've delved into the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers or ProPublica's IRS files or LuxLeaks or um, Swiss Leaks or any of those other uh, spectacular leaks that we've that we've had, one of the things that's very striking about them is how stupid the scams are. Like again, going back to like the keys were stolen because they were on a web server that no one bothered to put a password on as opposed to the keys were stolen because someone broke into the high security facility and then pickpocketed the the fob that was needed to boot the laptop that was contained therein. When you look at how Peter Thiel or Steve Ballmer or uh, Mexican gangsters or Russian oligarchs hide their money when it's laid out and when you see the kind of advice that Mossack Fonseca and the other kind of Renfields of the ultra rich vampires of capitalism are, are, uh, are giving out for huge amounts of money in terms of the, the cost of that advice. It's just very bad. Like a lot of it is very circular. It's like, well, we're going to take your money and we're going to, um, put it in a trust in Guernsey and then we're going to make the trustees a numbered company in um in uh uh scotland and then we're going to take the scottish number company and make its officers another trust in guernsey and you look at that and you're like well leaving aside the ethics of all of this presumably the reason you don't just have this you don't just stop with the number trust in guernsey is you don't trust that as being secure you're worried that it has a defect or a vulnerability that is not present in the in the scottish numbered company why are you looping this through Guernsey twice then? This is like saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going to bounce my packets from this host to that host and then back to the first host. Well, hold on. I, I thought the reason to use the second host was that you thought the first host couldn't be trusted. What's the point of sending it back to that first host? It's just latency. And, you know, in the case of like Mossack Fonseca or KPMG, it's just billings. Right. It's just like every time I set up another shell company, I bill you again. Right. And, and when you look at this, and, and Marty says this eventually in the book, when you look at the structures of these vehicles, you have to come to the conclusion that either the tax officers are uh, demoralized or complicit, because if they were really trying, it wouldn't be that hard to unravel this stuff. And, and Maria Farrell, who's a great tech critic, she's written a, a canonical essay called The Prodigal Tech Bro. Uh, that I, I thoroughly recommend to your attention. She wrote something about this in, um, uh, in, uh, Crooked Timber, where she said, you know, if you're a Chandler hero or another hard boiled detective, you're doing the things the cops can't do, right? The cops can't go in there because they can't get a warrant. They, they can't get that information because they're not allowed to rough up the suspect, but the, the two fisted detective can do what, what the cops can't do. Well, Marty Hench is a cop on the beat 
yeah. replacing a kind of cop that we have defunded, which is the IRS investigator. We've defunded a lot of police. OSHA inspectors, National Labor Revo- uh, Review Board uh, enforcers, Federal Trade Commission enforcers, uh, um, you know, Department of Justice, Consumer Protection. All of those cops have been thoroughly defunded. And so he's a cop that can go where the regular cops can't go. The kind of cop he is is the IRS agent. And he's doing the things that the IRS can't or won't do in order to to uh, unveil or, or peel, pull back the veil on how the scam works. And because most of the time he's working for people who've been ripped off by a company they invested in or a crooked business partner or a scumbag ex-husband, he doesn't need to rise to the the proof of the IRS. But now that he's like trying to figure out how to keep these two murderous gangs from killing him, he's got to he's got to find another solution. What's next for him? So the books, it's a funny story. So uh, I write when I'm anxious. Uh, I have seven more books coming up. It's been a tough couple of years. Uh, and, um, you know, from lockdown on, I sat in the hammock every day and just wrote all day. I blog post stuff for EFF, books, short stories, novellas. I just like, I wrote to outrun my, my fear. And by the following Christmas, I was just burned out and I took two weeks off. And when I came back, this book like battered its way out of my fingertips in six weeks flat, just blam. So I, first I gave it to my wife. My wife is a wonderful person who uh, cares very much about my career, but has her own shit to deal with and can't read everything I'm going to write because I write too much. And so I gave it to her and I said, honey, like, um, I know it's going to be a while before you can read this if ever, but like, just read the first couple of pages. Let me know what you think. So then I rolled over that night at 2.30 in the morning, and she was sitting bolt upright in bed with her phone. And I'm like, what are you doing? She said, well, I had to find out how it ended. So I knew I was onto something. And then I sent it to my editor. My editor, again, wonderful fella. We met on a BBS in the 1980s when I was a teenager. Uh, he's kind of a father figure, older brother figure to me. He's uh, edited every novel I've ever written. Uh, and I have the utmost respect for him, but I think even he would admit that he is not the world's most reliable correspondent. Uh, and, uh, I sent him the book fully expecting months to go by before I heard back from, him. and I got an email the next morning. It's just four lines. That was a fucking ride. Whoa. <laughs> and he called my agent up and bought three of them. And as you know, from having read this book, this is Marty Hench's final adventure. And so what am I going to do now that I have to write three of them? I thought about like bringing him back out of retirement the way Arthur Conan Doyle did with Sherlock Holmes, but Conan Doyle got a knighthood out of it. <laughs> uh, you know, Queen Victoria said she would knight him if Sherlock Holmes somehow survived the fall over Rickenbacker Falls. Uh, whereas, you know, my editor being a very powerful man in New York publishing and a vice president of the Macmillan company can do a lot of things for me, but he cannot knight me. And so I was not going to bring Marty Hench back out of retirement. He's suffered enough and he's earned it. So instead I decided I could write these books backwards, uh, that I could have the books go backwards in time. And that moreover, I wouldn't have any continuity problems if I did that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Cause causality runs backwards. So the next book, it's called The Bezel. It's already available for pre-order. It comes out next February, and it's a prison tech book. It's about a guy who sells a company, Yahoo, when Yahoo is buying every promising company and destroying it, uh, who ends up getting on the wrong side of a powerful real estate developer who has the LA uh, sheriff's deputies frame him and send him up during the period of California three strikes when you go to jail for 25 years if you commit a third felony. Uh, and while he's in prison... The prison falls into the hands of a uh, of a prison tech grifter who takes away mail 
uh, visits and packages and replace them with a, a free tablet that you uh, have to pay to read Gutenberg project books on and that you have to pay uh, you have to buy digital stamps to to get email from the people that you love and you can video conference with them in a little tiny poster stamp but it's eight dollars a minute and and it, this guy slowly starts to destroy the prison and moreover it takes up a vendetta against Marty's friend and Marty has to um, unwind the scam and save his friend's life uh, from in prison violence. Uh, and then the third book, which comes out the following January, January 2025, is called Picks and Shovels. And it's about Marty's first adventure in the 1980s. It comes out to Silicon Valley and his first job is working for a grifty PC company called the Three Wise Men. And there really were PC companies that were this weird. Maybe not this weird, but nearly this weird. It's run by a, uh, a Catholic priest, a Mormon bishop, and an Orthodox rabbi. And it's actually a pyramid scheme that preys on faith groups. And... uh <laughs> Uh, they have these three rogue employees who've taken off and the way that they make the grift work is they, um, like everything is super proprietary. So you can't use a regular floppy disk. You have to buy these floppy disks where they've actually like, uh, uh, mechanically ruined one sector and the drive checks to see whether that sector is readable. And if it is, it won't use the floppy. I remember um, these kinds of things. Yes. Oh yeah. They've re-sprocketed. I'm really proud of this. They re-sprocket their fanfold, uh, feed in their printers so that you need, uh, printer paper that has slightly wider holes in it. Uh, and so you have to buy special paper from them that costs extra. So anyways, these three rogue employees, uh, one's a, a queer Orthodox woman who leaves the faith because her parents reject her. One's a, a Mormon woman who leaves the faith uh, over their unwillingness to uh, support the Equal Rights Amendment. And one's a, a nun who falls in with liberation theologists in Central America during the Dirty Wars. And they're all gifted technologists. They start a company to make uh, interoperable products to liberate the faith groups who've been trapped by the, the, the reverend sirs, as they call themselves. And Marty switches sides and goes to work for them and they destroy, uh, uh, the three wise men PC company and their weird mafiosi, uh, pay, uh, paymasters who are incredibly violent and dangerous and they manage to wriggle away from them. It's, it, it was a really fun book to write. They're all in the can. They're all coming out over the next, uh, year and a half. And where should the audience go if they want to pick these up? So, uh, um, redteamblues.com will take you to the, uh, well, actually, no, that takes you to the tour page. So, uh, just type Red Team Blues into the internet. Uh, you'll find it straight away. Macmillan has a web webpage where they tell you where to go and buy it if you don't want to buy it on Amazon. And good for you if you don't. Uh, bookshop.org and so on. The audiobooks aren't available on uh, Amazon. Amazon won't carry any of my audiobooks on their Audible subsidiary because they're DRM free. So you can get them everywhere that's not Amazon, Google Play, Libro.fm, Downpour.com. And if you go to craphound.com slash shop, you can get all my ebooks and audiobooks direct from me. I just like, I'm the retailer for him. So I, you know, you pay me, I pay my publisher. Corey, thank you so much for coming on to uh, Cyber and walking us through this. Uh, if you. you like the show, please follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV and youtube.com forward slash motherboard TV, where you can watch us live and figure out what we were giggling about as we came in about sampling. Uh, yeah. Do you have, do you have five, maybe five, 10 minutes to come down with us after the streams over here? Or do you need to? Uh, I can do five minutes. You can do five minutes. All right, I got I got yeah. one more question for you then. Okay, let me Off. message the guy who's expecting my call, and I'll let I'll let him know. Yeah. Yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.